0: Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Inman, and today we have part two of an interview with uh, two folks from the Abuse Doc Working Group in No More Deaths, or No Mas Muertes. And uh, we're just going to pick up right in the middle of where we left off and um, talk a lot about. Search and rescue, um, and the newest report from No More Deaths, uh, separate and deadly, which is mostly about uh, like nine one one dispatch discrimination and medical discrimination and collaboration with Border Patrol. Um, if this, if this, if you haven't listened to part one, um, probably not entirely necessary, but it lays a lot of important groundwork and context for what we're going to be talking about today. So go back and give part one a listen. But before we get to that, we are a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts. And here is a jingle from another show on that network. Do 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 Haha, <laughs> <laughs> see, mixing it up.
1: Are you tired of
2: listening to Western experts talking how the world works? Is another portion of liberal analysis of the uprising makes you fall asleep?
1: Well, then check Elephant in the Room, an anarchist radio show from European Dresden, where we interview activists who are participating in struggles around the world.
2: Elephant in the Room is a proud member of Channel Zero Network. You can find our show on your favorite podcast platforms,
1: CZN website, or somewhere on the internet. From activists. For activists.
0: Um yeah so it's it's kind of wild to me that like it you know border patrol has these like non responses and it's like it seems like those non responses are on purpose, but like it's like they have they have like every piece of technology at their disposal and like every system and like they they just have everything, and yet they like you know they like purpose purposefully don't help um find people um
2: yeah that was something we really chronicled in part three looking at their budget and just this the way in which border patrol is absolutely a militarized enforcement agency first and foremost and 99 percent of their budget and personnel are dedicated to enforcement mission you know that they're kind of the um, search and res- Border Patrol Search and Rescue, so-called um, wing of Border Patrol, is minuscule um, uh, compared in terms of staffing and funding and so on. And it's really, um, you know, there to propagandize. Um, and you know, they do take part in some some of this, of course, but but really looking at the way in which they are geared towards enforcement first and foremost. And we have, you know, cases of agents um, being asked to search for someone in South Texas and a higher up saying, Oh, I'm not going to pull my agents off of the checkpoint to go search for a person in distress, you know, so seeing those priorities play out in real time on a given case. So Yeah. They have all this incredible, you know, powerful equipment and, um, uh, resources, but those are really dedicated to carrying out their enforcement mission, which then compromises, you know, their status as some sort of first responder.
0: Yeah. And it's like, they have that, like, God, what is it called? The, the Boar Star helicopter that they pull out for like photo shoots or something.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of emphasis on, you know, their high tech capabilities of rescue. Um, and one thing I can't remember. If, so if we mentioned is what we found in the report you know, when we were looking at these diminished responses and how brief some of their efforts are is they essentially won't do a search. Um, you know, really in any case, they'll do rescues that are pinpointed where they have exact coordinates. Um, but a lot of the time what their response will look like is going to the coordinates and if the person's not right there, um, they call off the search. Um, so what we think of is like a search where like you have a whole – You know, maybe team of people combing an area, you're doing some investigation from like the information that you do have to try and, you know, guess where someone might be and putting in like resources to look for someone where you don't have their exact location, but you have some information to go on. Um, We're not seeing like those types of responses at all. Um, So, yeah, then what you see instead is these PR events where they're like, look, we could rescue someone off the side of a cliff, you know, but that's not translating to actual meaningful responses for the, you know, the situations that they're actually being confronted with. And we definitely have a lot of cases of, you know, Border Patrol saying, you know, our helicopter is busy right now. So helicopters are used for enforcement. You know, in the chasing scatter report, we really looked at that, like Border Patrol flying helicopters, very low over people who are migrating um, to scatter them, intimidate them, kick up a lot of like dust. It's very like, um, you know, intimidating and frightening for people to have a helicopter fly really low over them. Um, and then, yeah, we're seeing these like situations where they won't respond. They won't pull their helicopter from an enforcement mission to go search for somebody who's lost.
2: And then this like really perverse scenario in which someone who's been chased and become lost because of a helicopter scattering them then ha- is supposed to look to the same helicopter that put them in harm's way to come and rescue them. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The, the notion that border patrol could function, um, uh, to respond to the search and rescue
0: crisis in the borderlands. Yeah. And it's like, to put it, I don't know, in weird contrast, we did an episode on uh search and rescue like earlier, specifically like in a uh, like national park, you know, uh, from mm. this, this person who does like search and rescue there. And like, they're like, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm remembering this wrong and someone's going to be upset about that. But, um, uh, they're like, yeah, we get a call and then like within an hour we're like out and like looking for people and like usually find them very quickly, you know, and it's like these like, mm-hmm. and the, it's like this like other like, you know, national agency with like so much, so fewer resources at their disposal and they're like, yeah, it's like search and rescue isn't easy, but like they're like, yeah, we, we, we find people pretty quickly. <laughs> Because we're professionals. <laughs> like,
2: I don't know. Right. We mm-hmm. did some interviews with Pima County Search and Rescue, which we'll talk about more, but talking with them, you know, they go out to deploy for hikers lost, like in the Catalinas, you know, citizens or tourists. And when they were asked, you know, what is your success rate? They're <laughs> like, oh, you mean in like finding someone before? They've died, you know, like preventing loss of life, and we are not—we're like, no, in, in finding them at all, you know. And it is a confusing <laughs> question, right? Um, yeah. They're like, well, like almost a hundred percent. Like, what are you talking about? We're
1: not we're not. <laughs> not yeah, they're basically them. just like, yeah, we don't call off searches without finding someone.
2: Yeah, and that yeah. they really focused on preventing loss of life, like what you're saying, getting there rapidly. Um, and to them, a failure is finding the person in death but but what we're seeing is this failure to even mobilize or locate someone ever at all on the border
0: yeah and like what like what resources are like community like what is community search and rescue like efforts like look like like what in comparison like what resources do people have available
1: Yeah, I mean, it varies in different areas, but here in Pima County, which is, um, you know, the area we've looked at, um, and Pima County is, um, you know, most of the area that um, we work and do our humanitarian aid in in southern Arizona. Um, The sheriff's department is um, in charge of search and rescue. They have a lot of resources at their disposal. They have a volunteer um, search and rescue team that uh, when we were researching, I think um, we saw that they had 150 volunteers. Um, some recent reports that have come out in response to our report say that they have 200 to 300 volunteers. So maybe that's increased. Um, but they have this volunteer organization that works directly under the sheriffs and they're trained. Um, they yeah, they go out, they respond to lost hikers. Um, the the sheriff's department, you know, they have helicopters, they have drones and infrared cameras that they'll use. They also have volunteer canine teams that can go out. And especially if it's suspected that someone may have died already, um, the canine teams can go help locate them. They have a mounted contingent. So they have like a search and rescue contingent on horseback. Um, So they have, you know, in addition to their own search and rescue deputies, which I believe um, with the time that we were researching, they had eight deputies in the sheriff's department that were the search and rescue coordinators who would then activate this team of hundreds of volunteers that go out to search Um, And like Sophie said, when, you know, we ask about their success rate, they're like, we just, we find everybody, you know, like that's, that's what they do. Um, And like you were saying with the rapid response, you know, we did, um, and I guess we're getting a little bit into the next report now, but um, we listened to 911 calls that they're responding to from lost hikers, people who are calling and speaking English and presumed to be citizens and they usually have someone responding to the area before they're even like off their first phone call. You know, you so see, you have like dispatches collecting the information, and then they've already sent somebody like immediately, um, like to the location that the call is coming from.
0: Um. Okay. Well, uh, I th- <laughs> it's funny. We've um, uh, <laughs> been recording for a while now, and it all feels like it's been like in preparation for um. Talking about the thing that we're here to talk about, which is the new report. Um, mm-hmm. Would y'all want to introduce the new uh, part of "Disappeared, Separate, and Deadly"?
1: Yeah, so "Separate and Deadly" um, is a report that kind of directly came out of the research that we were doing for "Left to Die." Now, "Left to Die" really was focusing on Border Patrol and their lack of response, and wow. contrasting that with you know their sort of PR, putting themselves out there as rescuers. Um, But in doing that research, we started to also learn more about the county and the way that the county is handling 911 calls that they receive at sort of that first point of contact um, before they transfer it to Border Patrol. Um, And that research, you know, kind of was happening simultaneously with doing the research into Border Patrol's response. Um, We actually, at that time, had heard that the ACLU was, um, you know, considering pursuing a, a 14th Amendment Um, discrimination lawsuit against um, the Pima County Sheriff's Department for transferring calls to Border Patrol on the basis of people's presumed citizenship status. And they, um, in considering pursuing that, had received a few audio recordings of 911 calls um, and shared those with us. Um, So then we put in our own records request and requested um, 911 calls that they received and transferred to Border Patrol within a two-year period. It's from summer 2016 to summer 2018. We put in that records request, and I think we're quite surprised by the volume of calls we got back. Um, so that's when we got over 2,000 um, recordings of 911 calls that were being received by the Pima County Sheriff's Department, their 911 system, before being transferred to Border Patrol. Um, so we received those calls, and we you know, decided to listen to them um, and, and and create data and document what we were hearing in those calls. Um, And so that ended up feeling like it really was its own report. You know, like we wanted a report that focused on Border Patrol, and then we wanted to really look at the local county and their complicity um, and their discriminatory response um, to people who are lost in the desert. Um, So that's what this report came out of. It's um, it's been several years in the making. Um, We wanted to, you know, release it as a follow up to Left to Die, but really just focus on the county itself and its lack of response.
2: Yeah. And there's like kind of this story told about border counties in the context of prevention through deterrence that, you know, prevention through deterrence is this federal policy and it's, you know, unduly burdening counties to respond to the emergencies that it's creating. And these counties are all you know, um, under-resourced and flailing to, to handle these emergencies. And that, you know, that's true in some counties on the border. Um, like if you look at Brooks County in South Texas, for example, it's, you know, one of the poorest counties in the country. But when you look at Pima County, which is so critical, you know, there's like 50% of all recovered remains on the border are in Pima County. Um, we, we see this other story that we've been talking about, that there are robust search and rescue resources, you know, available, in this county. And yet, when you look at the emergency response system, what we see is this segregated system in which 911 dispatchers, when they're receiving a call from someone they perceive to be undocumented and crossing the border, which they determine based on a number of different informal factors, they um, forego doing a missing persons intake as they would. Um, They have historically foregone... um, Uh, even assigning that call a case number. um, They forego forwarding that call um, and and any information with it to Pima County Search and Rescue. And instead, they just quickly transfer the call to a Border Patrol line and and quickly hang up. Um, So what we are seeing and what the ACLU is concerned with, and now we've partnered with Center for Constitutional Rights to look at this, is a segregated system in which your perceived identity as having citizenship status or not determines whether you'll receive uh, county emergency services and search, res- search and rescue response robust, or this really diminished um, lesser border patrol response that we know based on part three results in these high rates of death and disappearance. Um, so so kind of looking at the big picture of this, we just saw this really... Um, deadly form of discrimination, which you know um, gets into on the one hand, the way in which counties, like Parker is saying, is, are complicit in carrying out prevention through deterrence, that so they actually um, have this active role, not just this passive role in carrying out and exacerbating the harms of this federal policy on the one hand, and that's sort of an important lever for thinking about how to challenge what's happening on the border. Um, locally. And then on the other hand, there's this kind of larger constitutional issue, 14th Amendment, equal protections issue regarding what what does it mean when something's separate and unequal? And there's all these Supreme Court cases, right, that have looked into that in terms of race, like Brown versus Board of Education, and, and seeing that those um, interpretations haven't yet really been applied to cases of segregation based on citizenship status that are really in direct conflict with Um, The mandates um, of the county that they have, like if you look at their protocol and their mandate is to protect the life of all people in their jurisdiction. right? There's no language distinguishing citizenship status and there's actually anti-discrimination policies embedded in county protocols that we're seeing being really flagrantly defied. And the practice of having dispatchers um, just bump these calls to Border Patrol and away from local resources because of the identity of the caller
0: what were y'all encountering through like going through these going through these call records?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think we went into listening to these calls, not knowing exactly what we would find and, um, you know, sort of vaguely thinking that we would um, find some evidence of border patrol not responding. Um, but listening to these calls, what we found is that people are just being incredibly rapidly transferred to border patrol. And then the call is, you know, ended with no record of what happened after that. There's not really documentation of any of the outcomes of these calls, Um, And we also just saw like a lot of like mishandling um, by the dispatchers. Um, So what you hear basically is somebody calls and they say something in Spanish. Um, Sometimes, you know, uh, people are transferred, um, you know, so quickly. It's like really like they call and they say like, hablas espanol and dispatch says, you know, hold on and then transfers them to Border Patrol. Um, so a lot of discrimination on the basis of people calling and speaking Spanish, um, as well as their call plotting somewhere in like the remote wilderness of the borderlands. Um, so we saw that in a lot of cases, um, dispatch did not speak Spanish. Um, so they weren't able to communicate at all with the caller. Um, we found that in 68% of the calls we listened to dispatch, um, didn't have enough Spanish to be able to communicate with a caller in distress, which means that, they're missing really important information. Like you do have callers who are calling, and they're starting to like, they're describing their medical condition, they're describing their location, and dispatch, you know, um, is not able to communicate with them. Which, um, in, you know, in a region where you have a humanitarian crisis, essentially um, from a population that speaks Spanish, um, they're really not equipped to respond to this humanitarian crisis or to carry out, you know, their jobs of being emergency responders um, if you don't have Spanish speakers um, working for the county. Um, and then we found, you know, uh, there were no intakes being performed. So in 99% of the calls, almost every call we listened to dispatch did not conduct any intake, meaning they didn't ask any information about the caller's name, their location, description, medical condition. Do they have food or water? What did they see? Um, you know, anything like that. And we did request 911 calls, like I said, from, from presumed citizens, lost hikers, things like that. Um, And in those cases, it is routine that they ask these sorts of questions and the search and rescue deputies themselves have said, um, you know, you know, every caller, we ask them the crucial questions because, you know, if their phone dies, something like that, then we've collected information um, that we can like potentially base a search off of. And that's not happening in any of these cases. Um, So there's there's no information. So after the call is transferred to Border Patrol, you know, if that person's phone dies, they're not found by Border Patrol. There's no information collected at all. Um, we also found that in 50% of cases that we analyzed, there's no notice given to the caller at all that they're going to be transferred. Um, so they're just saying like, you know, one moment and then they transfer it to border patrol. There's no explanation of what's happening. So that person who's calling, who's, you know, potentially in like a life threatening emergency, they just hear a dial tone, you know, and then maybe the phone starts ringing. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, seem to think that they've been hung up on or the call has been lost, which might lead caller to callers to, you know hang up in order to not waste cell phone battery. Um, Yeah, so that was in 50% of cases, there was no notice given. And then in another 13%, notice is given only in English, even when the caller clearly doesn't speak English. Um, So yeah, so essentially we're just seeing these like really truncated responses where people are immediately profiled on the basis of the language they're speaking um, and then just immediately transferred.
0: Those calls are like being traced, right? And so it's like like they have the ability to like, really hone in on someone's location if they receive a call from them just via like cell phone technology?
1: Yeah. So the dispatchers, um, the 911 system, like they do have access to cell phone tracing technology. Um, and border patrol is relying on these GPS coordinates that are obtained by the dispatchers. Um, but it's, it's kind of a faulty system that accuracy can really vary. Um, especially when people are calling from remote areas with like not very strong um, cell phone service. Um, So when they call dispatch gets either phase one coordinates um, or phase two. And what that means is phase one coordinates means that the call is only connecting to one cell phone tower. And so their exact location can't be triangulated. So they just get the coordinates of the cell phone tower and sometimes like a general distance of like thousands of meters, um, you know, like how close that person is to the cell phone tower. Um, But those are very inaccurate coordinates. Um, And then if they're able to get phase two coordinates, that means that they're connecting to two different towers and it can be triangulated um, and they get a much more pinpointed rescue. Um, So they do convey these these coordinates to Border Patrol, which is the primary thing that they base their search off of. Like I said, Border Patrol will often only do a rescue if they have exact coordinates. Um, So the accuracy of the coordinates is, you know, a huge deal. It's a matter of life and death for people, whether they're able to get phase one or phase two coordinates. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the calls are phase one coordinates because there's such remote areas, not a lot of cell phone towers out in the desert. So what we're finding is that Border Patrol often won't search in these phase one cases um, and will only search in phase two coordinates. And dispatch actually, you know, they can sometimes re-ping, um, you know, a call that they're getting and eventually find phase two coordinates Um, so there are like a handful of calls we heard where dispatch said, I'm going to stay on the line while you talk to them and try and get better coordinates. And after like a couple of minutes of trying, they might suddenly get phase two coordinates. Um, so that is a huge difference that like means this person might be rescued where they would not have been otherwise. Um, but we're finding that in most calls, dispatch is not doing that. They're certainly not doing it as a matter of policy. It's at the discretion of the dispatcher. Um, and most of the time they're not doing it. And they're hanging up immediately after they transfer the call to Border Patrol, even though it can make a huge difference in like that person's rescue response um, and could potentially save their life if they spend a few extra minutes trying to get better coordinates.
0: Have y'all been able to figure out, is that like a matter of like protocol or is it just like the person on the line just does not care.
1: You know, we do have these examples of cases in which the person does choose to do it. Um, it doesn't appear to be a matter of protocol. Um, it's just, you know, they get a lot of these calls and they're very, you know, bureaucratized about it, very routine. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time, I think yeah. it doesn't really like occur to them to stay and try and get better coordinates.
2: With what Parker's talking about, where we're seeing a real pattern of border patrol being unwilling to mobilize a search, right? Like when there aren't exact coordinates of the person, when it's not. Um, a straight rescue, um, it makes that intake process even more important, right? So like a phase mm-hmm. one call where you have 5,000 meters of accuracy paying off a single cell phone tower, well, then in order to mount a search, what you really need is the narrative of the person, right? Regarding exactly what they know about where they are, what they can see, what they've passed along the way, information about their medical condition, how far they are likely to be able to move or travel, you know, do they have a lower extremity injury that's preventing them from walking? How much water do they have left? Can they make a call back? All that information becomes so crucial if they're only able to extract phase one coordinates. And then I also wanted to add that we have cases in which, um, Even though phase two coordinates are being derived from the caller, there's apparently no response from Border Patrol. So we had this case in March of 2018 in which a caller who's crossing the border calls 911 in Pima County 11 times in 10 hours. Um, He's lost and alone and keeps calling because no one is coming and his call is transferred to Border Patrol every single Time And his call has phase two coordinates within five meters of accuracy of his location. And you can hear his medical condition diminishing with each call. And eventually he stops calling and we have no record of an outcome. So there's nothing... With the phase two coordinates, we can see that guarantees or mandates, you know, that says that Border Patrol is going to deploy. Um, So so within all of this, there's like trends of what seems to work better, but there's nothing really there as a true safety net to ensure response for someone calling 911 in distress. That is,
0: that's like, that's heartbreaking in so many ways. And that, like, Yeah, it's like it. It like it's 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 not negligence. It's it's complete disregard for like what's happening. Right. Like I don't know. As I think that's like why I kind of like ask questions about like the like the dispatchers. Where I'm like I'm like, are they are they aware of what they're doing? Are they so in, entrenched in bureaucracy? Do they think Border Patrol is going right. to like? do something about it or like, and like, it's like what I'm like, what do they, what do these people think the outcomes of these situations are? And like with border patrol, it's like, it's clearly disregard because if you know where someone is and you just don't go.
2: Right. I mean, I think the powers of normalization are so strong in the border crisis. Like, looking at Pima County, they're receiving like 1,500 distress calls a year from people crossing the border, four to five calls a day. So dispatchers are fielding these calls all the time and automatically forwarding, automatically forwarding. And that does something, right? That like creates normalization around disappearance within the culture of dispatch in the county. And we do see you know, occasionally, like bad actors, like dispatchers who are particularly abusive or hateful, we see on occasion like good actors, dispatchers who are clearly very concerned about the person and taking some extra measures, but it's all still really constrained within this protocol. Um, that that they're not the ones actually facilitating a response that they're counting on Border Patrol to act, and we we because our data was um you know derived for part 3 and from 2016 to 2018 we decided to do a a records request just a sampling of more recent calls um from June 2022 from last last summer um just to see you know is dispatch um Still doing this, and I was personally, you know, after we listened to because we spent hours and hours listening to these 911 calls, you know, and it's incredibly heartbreaking and discouraging. And I think I was hopeful that something had gotten better <laughs> since 2018, and and it was so jarring to see, you know, um, listening to the 2022 calls like the same protocol being carried out. Someone calls, speak Spanish. The dispatcher says, estas perdido, are you lost? If the person says, see, the call is immediately forwarded and they hang up and the rate of deriving phase two coordinates is, is still, you know, very partial. And in those calls out of those um, 65 cases that we got notes on 17 of those cases, the caller was never located. Um, and so, what we're also seeing in these calls is that even when there's clear indication and even reporting from Border Patrol that they're not responding to a person in distress, the county doesn't deploy. Um, so, so it was really hard to listen to these calls where someone's in such distress and they get forwarded, and then you see the outcome that they were never located, right? And the county's done nothing, even though they have full knowledge that there's a person missing in the county and Border Patrol isn't looking for them
1: um yeah and what we what we see a lot in those cases is is exactly what sophie was saying earlier where um you know we know from listening to the audio recordings that dispatch is not collecting information from callers um, and then we look at the case notes later and they say well you know border patrol didn't find them and we don't have any information so we can't search um so just sort of this reinforcing loop where they you know, they hand off responsibility to border patrol. um, And then when border patrol doesn't search, they, you know, they don't take up that search and they have not followed any of the normal protocols that they would have at intake for someone that they intended to search for, like someone calling, speaking English um, or a presumed citizen, you know, and so then they can just sort of wash their hands and say, well, we don't have any information, so we can't search. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And like border Patrol's not, if they're like transferred, border patrol isn't like conducting a separate intake to like, to, Get information that the dispatcher failed to get.
1: Yeah, in the few calls where we do have recordings of, you know, those cases where dispatch stayed on the line a little longer to try and get coordinates, or so for some reason we have a recording, you know, Border Patrol does seem to be doing those intakes that you know Pima County would normally be doing for someone they intended to search. But it doesn't seem from any of the files we've seen that there's any sort of that information sharing between Border Patrol and the county. Um, the County is, you know, typically they hang up before board, which does that intake. Um, and they don't have any of that information on which they could base a search. Yeah. I- yeah. Sometimes we hear those conversations
2: and like, um, there Parker's, what Parker's talking about is true is that we do sometimes hear the start of an intake, but we also hear, Border Patrol telling someone who's in distress, has no water, perhaps injured, that they need to walk to a road before Border Patrol is going to go look for them. We'll tell them, go go walk for an hour and call me back. Um, this kind of handling. We had a case from 2022 from that batch of calls where a caller is, um, the call is picked up by dispatch. The caller is frantic, saying my phone's about to die. I'm soaking wet and cold, I'm lost, um, and dispatch transfers the caller to Border Patrol, and the person's trying to say, like, I'm near antennas, like, trying to give locational information, they transfer to Border Patrol, he's, like, trying desperately to talk, and Border Patrol tells him in Spanish to shut up, Um, and, like, so we're hearing, like, you know, hostility from Border Patrol towards reporting parties. And that was a call that only generated phase one coordinates within 5,000 meters, which is like three mile radius around a cell phone tower. And the case file that we got on that said that Border Patrol never located that person um, and that the county took no further action on that case. So we also hear like obstruction and abuse in some of those calls with Border Patrol when we do get, you know, audio recording because the dispatcher chose to stay on the line.
0: Yeah. And, like, you know, looking through the report, like, there's, there's, like, the, you know, there's some, like, a, a lot of other, like, standout quotations, whether it's, like, from dispatchers being, like, actually, we're not going to deal with that, or, like, a Border Patrol agent who says, like, God, what is it? Um, They're going to stay lost, or something.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah when that I, was the case with phase one coordinates.
0: Like the like on the recording, the Border Patrol agent just come, just like says that is like like, well, they're gonna stay lost. oh my god.
1: Yeah. Dispatch gives them the coordinates and the and the distance of the coordinates and the border patrol agent says this guy's gonna stay lost. Oh
0: my
2: god. Um
1: yeah, I mean, and you, you get the sense, even though this
2: is public record, you know, like anyone should be able to request these recordings, you can feel the kind of culture of impunity around Border Patrol, that agents clearly aren't speaking in a way where they expect to be checked up on, you know, uh, so we're hearing those, those conversations. And it's, it's something, um, yeah, it's just this assumption of, of lack of oversight and impunity that's really embedded in the culture of the agency and its relationship with the public yeah and
0: maybe maybe to clarify like um the like these calls that y'all uh, are listening to or like requesting these are like the dispatch calls like if dispatch hangs up is that mm-hmm. where the recording ends like you're like y'all aren't hearing the board yeah mm-hmm. like once they're transferred you're not yes, hearing yeah. anything else
2: Right, to get the border patrol, and you would have to have a successful FOIA, you know, which could take years and generally doesn't render those kinds of recordings easily.
1: Yeah, we submitted a FOIA request in like 2018 or something and are still waiting Mm -hmm. on documents. And we're working with like a law firm who's litigating it, and we still, you know, have like just started to get some documents. And that's, you know, that's beyond the capacity for, for most people. Yeah. Yeah. To get
0: these like recordings of, of border patrol calls with people. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, so there, there's kind of like another side to, there's like another component to this report too, um, which is, I believe I'll call it like, like compromised care or like EMS collaboration with border, Mm -hmm. with border enforcement, um, I was wondering if y'all could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Do you want to start with that one, Sophie? Yeah. I mean, I think
2: um, that's a part of the report that pulls on aid worker testimony more heavily. Uh, it was really inspired by experiences of our volunteers. I mean, including Parker and I working in the field and um, encountering people in distress who needed, you know, emergency evacuation to the hospital and seeing the kind of infiltration of border patrol into that, um, into the emergency medical response system, you know, every step of the way. Um, so, so compromised care is less about like search and rescue cases and more looking at the way in which border patrol infiltrates and inhibits EMS. Um, so, um, I think Parker and I both have stories connected to this, but I, I was um, in, in, in one situation, I was um, uh, out in the desert to put out water on Christmas and with other volunteers, when we encountered this woman Lupe in distress who had a collapsed lung. Um, she had been attacked in the desert and left under a blanket and she was in respiratory distress and she had been there for you know overnight like a long time this is sort of that abandonment piece right um and no one had been down that remote road until we happened to choose to go to a water drop out there that day and we called you know t- talked to her and 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 even though she was in such distress it actually took a while to get her consent to call Nine one one, because she was crossing because her son was chronically ill. She needed to make money to pay for his medical procedure, and you know was desperate um, to, to to make it. And eventually, she did consent to calling nine one one, and we you know, let them know we're in this vehicle on this road heading to the local fire station. And when we arrived, there was this like armada of border patrol, like 10 agents, multiple trucks, like surrounding the fire station, essentially, Um, and in and around the ambulance. And when they were taking her from our vehicle, you know, into the ambulance before realizing they needed to call for, um, for her to be. You know, have a helicopter to the emergency room because it was so desperate. The agents were like getting in the way of medical workers to try to get her ID to start processing her on her um, criminal migration violation. You know, while she's like receiving care, and we followed her case. And she was, she had been, you know, assaulted in the desert and was um, was handcuffed to her hospital bed. She had a border patrol agent stationed in the room with her the whole time she was there. Um, You know, which is incredibly intimidating for someone who's a survivor of assault or anyone. Um, And eventually, I mean, her case was interesting because she she eventually qualified for a, a U visa. Um, and protected status um, because she had been the victim of a crime in the United States, and we saw sort of the interplay between the county that was treating her as the victim of a crime and, and border patrol that was treating her as a criminal um, so so that was a really stark you know example, and and we saw you know every time that we 've evacuated someone to um, the fire station for um, to get to the emergency room like border patrol follows the ambulance you know they're really kind of embedded every step in the way of the way which is a deterrent to calling 911 in the first place and also can really inhibit care um, Parker, I don't know if you wanted to talk about cases you've seen
1: yeah I one that really stands out to me is um I was, you know, volunteering at our humanitarian aid station one time, and a man came in who had been bitten by a a rattlesnake, he came in and told us that he had just been bitten. Um, So myself and another volunteer, you know, uh, immediately wanted to call 911. But similarly, you know, this is he, you know, for a long time was saying that he didn't want us to call 911. He didn't want to go to a hospital that he thought he was fine. Um, because of course he knew that if um, we did call nine one one and an ambulance came, that would result in him being deported. Um, this was a man who had like lived in Tucson for years before being deported, and his family was there. His young daughter was there, and she had actually recently had an accident, so he was you know very urgently trying to get back to his family um, and didn't want to be deported. Um, and eventually, his like he started to show symptoms, and we said, look, we like have to call nine one one. Like we're really afraid that you might die. Um, He agreed um, and was brought to the hospital. Um, A volunteer was able to like visit him in the hospital. And yeah, Border Patrol, Border Patrol was, you know, he ended up being evacuated by helicopter. Border Patrol was like waiting um, to like start processing him like as he was like prepared to like, you know, do life flight to the hospital in Tucson. Um, You know, as soon as we started driving up to like drive him to where we were meeting the helicopter, he saw the Border Patrol vehicle and was like, I don't want to go, you know. Uh, so it was really, um, you know, there's a huge deterrence to people to like, even when they're like in a life critical situation to call 911, because they know border patrol is waiting for them. They know they're going to be deported. Um, you know, he ended up being brought to the hospital. Um, they, you know, were denying him visitation for a long time. They had him like handcuffed at the hospital. Border patrol was stationed in his room at the hospital. Um, and then he ended up being deported, um, without even like completing his full medical care, he still had like follow-up like work to do, which is a thing that we also like document and see pretty often is like people being deported who are like still in pretty unstable medical conditions. Yeah. hmm Yeah.
2: Yeah. And just sort of violations of medical ethics every step of the way because of someone's simply because of their identity or status. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, is, are, are there like, are there laws that require like EMS to like, to inform on someone's uh, like known or unknown status?
2: I mean, my understanding of that is it's really less about a legal mandate and more about funding um, and getting bumper funding from the federal government to cover, you know, like the 30% of call uh, 30% of EMS calls and transfers in border counties that are, um, undocumented people in distress, um, and and so like calling and filing with Border Patrol is the way to access those those bumper funds. Um, Parker, do you have thoughts about that?
1: No, I mean I I, I believe the answer is no. There is nothing that yeah. requires them to inform on someone's medical status. It really is about funding and the fact that you know Border Patrol has created this humanitarian crisis that's overwhelmed the local emergency response systems in these rural areas. Um, so they get reinforcement, I believe from the department of home, I mean, uh, reimbursement from the mm-hmm. department of Homeland security, um, right. for the cost yeah. of providing the care. Um, and that really is like what has created the system. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <sighs> Dang. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, you know, that's just all really fucked up. That's, that's my, that's my very, yeah. uh, <sighs> uh, articulate opinion about all of this is it's just really, yeah. fucked up. <laughs> I guess like, what is the justification for like border for the County to like pass off all of this stuff to border patrol?
1: So yeah, when we have, you know, confronted the County about this, they, um, you know, they consistently deny making any decisions based on immigration status, which, um, you know, in addition to being a constitutional issue is against their own policies. Um, and so what they'll consistently say is that they don't make any decisions based on um, immigration status, but it's purely based on a caller's location and what resource is the closest. So saying, you know, Border which was closest and that's the only reason we transfer it, it has nothing to do um, with like them having crossed the border. Um, but, you know, we, we know that this isn't true um, for a number of different reasons. Um, one is you know we document a lot of calls, like this one that Sophie was describing earlier, where the same person has called for hours and hours. Um, you know, if you have the same person calling for ten hours, he still hasn't been rescued. You can't say that you're just transferring to Border Patrol because they're gonna respond faster, um you know, if you know they're not responding. So, yeah, what we find in the calls is that it really is um, you know, The person's spoken language and and saying that they're lost is really used as sort of like a stand in to determine that um, a caller is across the border um, rather than actually being like the basis of why they're transferring the calls. And we have we have documentation of
2: this. Um, So so there's this case that was really kind of important to the development of this report that came in through the missing migrant hotline. Um, This was in May of 2019. Um, The family of a 17-year-old named Danielle uh, had called the Missing Migrant hotline um, uh, because Danielle had contact or uh, traveling companions of Danielle had contacted them. So he was 17. He was traveling with other people crossing the border and he fell ill, was unable to walk, was maybe unconscious and Um, His traveling companions contacted his family, told them his condition, and said that they left him 10 or 15 minutes from a paved intersection in Marana, which is like a suburb of Tucson, so not remote backcountry at all, like a named paved intersection, and they had screenshots of the location, and so then the family called Border Patrol with this information, asking for a response, and Border Patrol refused to deploy. Um, And then they called the missing migrant hotline, and a volunteer who picked up the call then called with their consent, called 911. And so this volunteer was, like, you know, English-speaking, called 911. So there's a 17-year-old in distress, you know, this far from this intersection. He wasn't asked anything about the identity of the caller. He didn't, you know, he just... So this is a person in distress and then um, was told that, you know, deputies and multiple fire departments were en route to that location um, to the point last seen. Um, And then they heard nothing for a few hours and the the volunteer called back to see um, what was going on with the search and learned from the detective on the phone that that they had called off the local response, the search and rescue deputies, the fire departments, because they discovered that Danielle was a known illegal immigrant. And that was the language in their case notes on the report that it became apparent to them that he was a known illegal immigrant. So they had called off local resources and instead transferred his case to border patrol there was no follow-up number no one for the family to call to see what was the status of border patrol's efforts to look for the, for him and border patrol had already refused once to go out and then three days later his remains were recovered like extremely close to the location that was provided by his traveling companions um and and so that was a really outrageous case in which it was obvious that you know this is a suburb this isn't the back country and then Case was, you know, forwarded as they're reporting themselves because of his status um, to Border Patrol, who then did not prevent loss of life. And and the 17 year old died as a consequence. And this is like incredibly normal. Um, And even when we confronted, you know, with the family and a coalition confronted the then Sheriff Napier about this, they still insisted that it was just location because they know that it's a constitutional issue that they can be litigated against if they admit, even though you know they've done it in writing, that they're forwarding based on people's identity. Um, and then we have you know the opposite. We have cases of citizens calling for search and rescue in and around Arivaca, like in the border zone in this exact same mountains where a lot of these distress calls are coming from undocumented people, like people who went out to go hunting and got lost and those calls aren't transferred, they get a full intake, a deputy's on the way to rescue that person. So we have a lot of, you know, evidence to contradict their um, policy, but they seem to, you know, and, and I think this is part of why we don't hear dispatchers in these calls saying Asking directly, are you undocumented? Are you an immigrant? You know, what's your citizenship? Because they know that that's illegal. Instead, there's sort of these like, um, uh, kind of code words for that. Like, they'll always ask, you know, are you lost? And lost becomes, you know, uh, a, a coded way of talking about someone's status to justify
1: transferring the call. Yeah. I mean, it's literally in their system now. They have it's like lost person is their official designation, whereas like search and rescue calls with citizens are, you know, coded as search and rescue. Um, you know, even right. if they're lost, but if the caller is speaking Spanish, they're called a lost person. It's, you know, sort of their euphemism. Yeah. Um, and then as to dis- dispatch, like you mentioned some of the damning quotes that we do have in the report, and then, um, you know, it, in these calls directly from people in distress, you're not really hearing them like directly um, address their immigration status, even though that is the basis of, you know, how they're responding Mm -hmm. to the calls. Um, but we do have like some recordings from over the years, um, where you might happen to get like a dispatch from another County who's transferring over a call and you hear the Mm -hmm. two, um, you know, like County officials talking to each other. And, um, we have a couple of cases like that, like one where someone's calling, I think from, um, I think that one's Maricopa and they're saying, you know, we Mm -hmm. have a call from this person, they're in your jurisdiction, um, and the Pima County dispatch is like, well, you know, like, are they speaking Spanish? And then, uh, you know, the other dispatch is like, yes. And they're like, okay, so are they illegal? Cause we're not going to go search for them. Um, you know, or like a case we had from 2018 where they said, um, actually we're not going to deal with that. Um, and, and I myself and, you know, some other people have had experiences of trying to call and I'm one to get a response for someone and a dispatch who, you know, maybe at that point doesn't, you know know that they're not supposed to say this directly we'll just say like oh is it a migrant we don't search for migrants um -hmm. so there's like this thing like very well known internally that that is their policy but it's also like known especially amongst the like higher ups in the sheriff's department that they can't say that directly so you just hear this sort of like repetitive like nope it's based on location nope it's only based on location because border patrol responds faster kind of no matter what information we present them with um to the contrary god
0: Yeah, that's, I don't know.
2: So it's ripe for, you know, (laughs) transformation. It's a context that's ripe for serious transformation, I would
0: say. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, is there any hope of transformation beyond, like, sorry, beyond, like, the abolition of the border and Border Patrol or, like, the shitty hell government that we have, like...
2: (laughs) (sighs) I mean, you know, part of me wants to say no, but I also know that there are, you know, serious harm reduction measures that could be put in place pretty swiftly to to affect a lot of people's Lives. I mean, in the report, we list a number of kind of simple reforms that could happen within the, the dispatch system, such as having Spanish fluency be a requirement, right, for dispatcher hiring, um, such as requiring a full intake, um, such as requiring that the county remain, uh, maintain responsibility for these cases, even if they're calling in Border Patrol, that they're responsible for the outcome and responding, mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so essentially like, you know, there's, there's little kind of granular reforms that could be made to the dispatch system. Um, there's a more general reform of like, everyone in the County should have the same response regardless of, of status. Right. And if the County did actually have to bear the full burden of responding to these calls, uh, they have the capacity to put pressure on the federal government, right, in a way that maybe we don't directly um, to, to do something to change policy. So there are those pieces. And, you know, I think a lot of that requires further investigation into this issue, um, more litigation, um, so <laughs> suing them, you know, um, and trying to <laughs> increase accountability. <Yeah. laughs> And equity, you know, a more robust response is totally possible. Um, Yeah, and trying to, I think part of what's empowering about looking at the county versus um, looking at Border Patrol directly, like this report versus the other is when we're looking at Border Patrol directly, it's like this, you know, totally opaque, powerful federal agency that's like getting all this like war on terror funding, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like really hermetic and you know, a Goliath when thinking about trying to get any wins. But when you're talking about the county, it's like, there is more leverage, you know, for for local people to demand accountability, they're more vulnerable to litigation. Um, So there is kind of there, I, I see it as something that can be more effectively pressured if you're thinking in those Kinds of terms, you know, will it end the border crisis? You know, not unto itself, but certainly it will. It will. It's an angle from which to try to squeeze the policy of prevention through deterrence. You know, um, so so we're hopeful that you know further investigation and exposure can put more pressure. You know, from this direction. Uh, I don't know if Parker has thoughts about that, but that I I found it more encouraging to actually have names and faces (laughs) of people to to challenge, you know, to answer for these policies. For example,
1: yeah, Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's uh, you know, search and rescue, no matter how well funded, is not you know the solution to the border crisis. Um, And in that sense, you know, we yeah, abolish border (laughs) patrol for that. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> we, you know definitely try and really center that that like we want you know we want this border crisis to end we don't want you know solely just like more humane responses to it um, but yeah I mean I guess I'll just say that like working on these reports especially left to die you know it is obviously really fucked up heavy content but there is a lot of inspiration there and in seeing how like communities respond themselves to go out and search for people and um, the way that families respond and um, just like the solidarity between people crossing the border as well as like border communities. And so, you know, I think that was sort of like a salve and sitting with all of this content is just, you know, um, seeing the incredible ways that people have responded, um, just themselves, you know, outside of these sorts of like official response systems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's uh, the question of like, how can, this be better it's like yeah border patrol like like border patrol is the cause of the problem so like reforming it isn't gonna like provide a solution because they are the problem they can't you know (laughs) like like they're they're doing Mm -hmm. what they set out to do um and like it Mm -hmm. seems like their like responses to like search and rescue and like things like that are just in line with what they set out to do which is exactly what's happening um but, um, yeah, do y'all have any other kind of like, I guess like closing things for like, I don't know for I, I like I think about this with in you know, more direct connection to themes of the podcast, but like like what like what can people who like live near border regions do that to like prepare for like encounters that they might have with like finding people who need help regardless of their like Uh, of their documentation, like status or like encountering people who are like, who are lost and like, or in need of medical care, like how can, how can people prepare for that?
2: Well, I think really, you know, kill the cop in your mind and know that humanitarian aid is never a crime and that that's, there is, you know, um, there are court cases to back that up and there's a lot of people to back you up. I think, you know, if you live in a border region, familiarize yourself with the humanitarian groups and non-governmental groups that are working in that region. If there isn't one, start one. Uh, I think contact the ACLU about setting up a know your rights training. There's a lot of kind of groundwork that can be done and you're not reinventing the wheel. Um, to, to, you know, connect with others around this and lose your fear so that you can act like a human person when you meet human people in trouble. Um, so, so I think there's a lot you can do, but it, it really starts with sort of embracing uh, the notion that, that helping people out in a human way is not, is not criminal, um, which is difficult when you're living under the intimidation of checkpoints and helicopters, but know that people are doing this on their own every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The other thing I want to say is just like, I think right now we're seeing this, like, uh, you know, we're recording this um, November 22nd, we're more than 40 days into the um, Israeli bombing campaign and ground um, invasion of of Gaza, and a lot of um, people kind of power mapping you know, how is it that the U.S. is delivering 70% of its military aid to Israel, you know, and what are the kind of direct links between U.S. um, border militarization and um, the militarism um, that's, you know, killed at least 14,000 people in Gaza. And through that power mapping, there's a lot of revelations about, like, weapons contractors that are, you know, they're shared contracting between the militarization of the border and the militarization of the occupied territories. And, you know, people targeting Elbit systems, for example, an Israeli company that um, has a multi-billion dollar contract um, for surveillance systems on the border that have super deadly consequences and putting pressure on them because they're also a contractor advancing, you know, this moment of really, um you know genocidal violence in in Gaza and the West Bank and and so i think really you know supporting those campaigns and and connecting those dots because these are you know um there's, there's sort of one industry that's supporting both of these border regimes, you know, and when we're talking about segregation, we're talking about forms of apartheid, you know, <laughs> it is a, a apartheid system if you have separate laws and um, separate classifications applying to people based on identity, and we certainly see that living in the border zone when we're looking at something like the 911 system. So, the, you know, these struggles are interlocking, and I think it's really powerful and important to bring that solidarity in um, so that we don't feel so alone, you know, when we're fighting these these goliaths
0: yeah yeah and it's like the i don't know it's 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 weird to it it, or whatever it's not weird it's just like how information processes but like uh to i remember like 10 years ago like when i first got involved with like border aid Mm -hmm. stuff like getting this like tour of um the desert and it's like seeing these like like the, the the virtual towers I, I, listening posts whatever they're called and like having the person who is facilitating um like that that training like talk about them like yeah they're like made by this israeli company elbit and like um and it's like the, they are the same company that like builds these systems of surveillance in in palestine and that like that the it's like every it's like everything that's happening that everything that has happened to people in Palestine is like like essentially like testing equipment and shit to like use other places and yeah it's 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 wild to see a lot of that coming out coming out now um but how like these like different like border border regions have been like connected for a very long time and i don't know that's not very articulate but
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's it's all just bad this is this is my burnout brain from talking about this for 2 hours being like i don't know yeah. shit's fucked like
2: But we must fight, go to the protest, you know? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's it's such an important and powerful time, you know, to be getting together on this.
0: Yeah. And it's like, like we see with like stuff in like the US, like Mexico, so called, like region, like that a huge thing that people can do is to just form community aid organizations or like groups and like have these conversations with your community to like build preparedness for like how to deal with uh, how to deal with finding people who are lost how to deal with like the I, it's hard to say lackings because it's purposeful but the like the conditions that like border patrol or like the US government or any government has created that are like, in these like humanitarian crises but
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, obviously, but, you know, this work is also connected to, you know, any migrant justice work happening, you know, away from the border. And, um, you know, I think just having this awareness of like, uh, you know, people, anyone who's deported from anywhere in the United States, this is what they face if they try and like return to their families. Like I said, a lot of people we run into in the desert, like they're from Tucson or, you know, they've like lived in the United States for a long time. And um, I think also just sort of like an awareness of the impact i think there's like less of an awareness of what the border is like what the crossing is like when you're away from it even though you know like there's so many people everywhere in our country who have been you know affected by the trauma of crossing through the desert or are you know threatened with you know having to do that again if they um, are deported or go visit their family in mexico or something you know like it like creates such a huge like um just like barrier of like trauma between um Yeah. South of the border and North of the border. Um, so I think like a lot of people, you know, when I sort of give presentations or like, uh, you know, what can we do to support no more deaths? And it's, you know, um, probably something, you know, in your own community. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, that seems like a good place to kind of leave it. Um, unless I don't know, do you, do either of y'all have anything else you'd like to say or like, uh, are there questions that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? Um, Or yeah
2: no we just appreciate you so much (laughs) i
0: appreciate y'all um
2: it's really nice to talk through it
0: yeah yeah and i don't know that's like one of the big reasons i wanted to have y'all come on is like um these conversations are so like embedded in like in southern arizona and like these places and like it's i've Mm -hmm. had like funny moments of going other places and like trying to talk about this stuff and realizing that like nobody has any clue what I'm talking about. And I get really confused. I'm like, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. It's so obvious that all this stuff is (laughs) happening and it's, I don't know that. Yeah. But they're just very embedded in our, in, in like our lives and our communities. And like, I don't know. So thank you all for coming on and and telling more people about this and if people want to learn more about it where can people find the report or any of the reports that that no more deaths has put out
1: uh, we have a website it's the disappeared report.org. um and if you forget that i you can just go to the no more deaths website and find the link on there if you like click on the abuse documentation tab, but yeah, that'll have all of our past reports as well as we have like summaries and fact sheets for them as well, as well as some um, really beautifully done animated videos showing the findings of the different reports, not the last one, but the first three.
0: Yeah. And there's like a, there's like a pretty cool article that someone wrote about it. Whose name I'm forgetting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. At high country news. Sick. Um,
0: Okay. Well, thanks y'all for coming on and, talking about grim stuff and providing some, some, uh, little nuggets of hope.
2: <laughs> Thanks. And then thank you. Ann-Man. Take care.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then, uh, ab- abolish the border, abolish border patrol. If you could figure that out, a lot of people would be really grateful. Um, and you know, you can also tell people about the podcast. It's the main way that people hear about the show, and honestly, one of the better ways to support it. Um, you could also like, like, and subscribe, or rate and review, or whatever these words are. I don't really know how the internet works. Um, and you know, boost it in the algorithm. I don't, I don't really know about that. But if you want to support us, in you know, other sillier ways um sillier to me because you know all things are silly well not all things wow inman's in a ranting mood um <laughs> another way to support the show is by supporting our publisher strangers in a tangled wilderness and you can support strangers by going to tangledwilderness.org org and buying books and zines and games uh we have a lot of fun stuff coming out um you know, soon and next year, um, including um, the TTRPG that we've been working on for an incredibly long time, Penumbra City. It is currently out for pre-order and it's going to be starting shipping in February. Uh, And you can also support Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness by finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. On Patreon, if you support us at ten dollars a month, then you can join the Zine of the Month Club, where we'll mail you a zine, which is a a feature that we put out every month. A lot of our uh, a lot of the features come from listeners and followers of the of the show and other podcasts that we put out. So find us at Patreon.com/slash Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, and in particular, we would like to thank these Patreon subscribers who um have joined another club and clubs are cool i think i don't know i don't know if clubs are cool um but these people are cool and they are patoli eric percival buck julia catgut marm carson lord harkin trickster princess miranda ben ben anonymous funder janice and odell ali paparuna millica boise mutual aid Theo, Hunter, SJ, Paige, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Kirk, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas, the dog. Thank you so much for everything that you've helped us with. And we hope that everyone's doing as well as they can with everything that's going on. And we'll talk to you next time. Okay, bye.